my brothers and sisters, I'm deeply humbled at the confidence of the Lord and my brethren and would pledge to you that I will do the very best I know how. The past nine and a half years, as I have been sent on errands for the Lord throughout the earth, have caused me, I believe, perhaps more than anyone else in this congregation to know that this church is filled with righteous, good, dedicated men. Each of us obediently learn that we will come forth as we are called to try to do the very best we can in our callings, whether it be home teacher, whether it be stake president, or whether it be general authority. I understand the source of the call and pledge to you that I have learned during the past nine and a half years that this is our Heavenly Father's Church, and the errands that I have been sent on to act in the name of the Lord have caused me to be able to witness to you today that I know, as I know that I stand before you, that Jesus is the Christ, that He lives, He is very close to this work, and very close to all of us that are asked to perform the work throughout the earth in His name. I would like to also bear witness that in my particular case, the veil between here and the hereafter is rather thin. And I acknowledge that it's been a great blessing in my life to be born of goodly parents, grandparents and great-grandparents, who have given everything they have been asked to give to the building of the kingdom of God upon the earth. Now, my brothers and sisters, I would ask for an interest in your faith and prayers. I express my affection to my wife, my children, who sustain me in whatever the Lord might ask me to do. I am grateful for this abundant blessing and pray humbly that I might serve you, the membership of this Church, in a way that would be pleasing and acceptable unto our Heavenly Father, and ask this prayer humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brethren and sisters, we now bring to a conclusion the 155th semi-annual conference of the Church. We've enjoyed a rich and rewarding two days. The weather has been wonderful here in Salt Lake City. We have been enlightened and blessed by those who have spoken to us. Our hearts have been lifted by the wonderful music to which we've listened. Prayers have been both inspired and inspiring. All of us have appreciated the attendance of President Kimball in all four of the general sessions.
Although he has not been able to speak to us, we have been able to look into, into his face, and that has been an inspiration. We know that he still stands as the prophet of the Lord in this day. I pray that as we return to our homes, we may do so with stronger resolution to live the gospel and to teach our children by precept and example to do so. Nephi's great words to his father when he and his brothers were asked to go back to Jerusalem for the record of their forebears are quoted frequently among us. They are familiar to all of you. Nonetheless, I wish to repeat them with the suggestion that each of us return to our homes with these words as a motto for the months ahead. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. In these last two days, we've been reminded frequently of the commandments of the Lord. We've had set forth before us the counsel of his prophets. All of this counsel will have been in vain if those of us who have heard it do not have added resolution in our hearts to go forth now with a fortified spirit of obedience to the will of the Lord. I know that frequently it is not easy to face up to that which is expected of us. Many think they cannot do it. We need a little more faith. We should know that the Lord will not give us commandments beyond our power to observe. He will not ask us to do things for which we lack the capacity. Our problems lies in our fears and in our appetites. We shall soon be extending calls to 60 or more men to go out and preside over missions. We'll give them more time than the Brethren gave mission presents many years ago when they simply read their notes and names in such conferences as this. Those with whom we will be speaking in the next two or three months will not be leaving until July. We live now in a very complex society, and we recognize that men need a period of time to get their affairs in order. Over the past years, it has been my responsibility to extend calls to scores of men, their wives, and their families to leave all behind and go into the mission field. Those with whom we shall speak in coming months will respond in the same way that those in the past have responded. They will, in effect, say, of course, I am ready to go whenever and wherever the Lord calls. They and, their, they and their wives will gather their children around them. There will be tears as the children think of leaving their schools and their friends. The family will kneel together in prayer. And when they arise from their knees, although their eyes will be moist, they will say in unison, We'll go where you want us to go, dear Lord. We'll do what you want us to do. I confess that at times I feel reluctant to ask people to do things in the Church. 
because I know they will respond without hesitation. And I know also that those responses will entail great sacrifice. But I know this also. In the case of mission presidents and their families, there will be more tears shed when they leave the mission field to return home than will be shed when they leave home to go into the field. It is so with temple presidents and with many others who are called by the Church to leave their homes to serve in the harvest field of the world. In all of my experience, I have never had anyone turn down such a call. There have been a few who, when I have inquired concerning their circumstances, we have felt that they should not go, at least at that time. But even in those cases, a strange thing happens. Once a man has been talked with concerning such an assignment, even though a call was not extended, he never seems to get over it. Before long, he is writing a letter or telephoning to say that he's ready to go. Someone occasionally says that there was so much of sacrifice in the early days of the Church, but there is no sacrifice today. The observer goes on to say that in those pioneer days, people were willing to lay their lives and even their, their fortunes and even their lives on the altar. What has happened to the spirit of consecration? Some of these ask. I should like to say with great emphasis that this spirit is still very much among us. I have discovered that no sacrifice is too great for faithful Latter-day Saints. Only a week ago a man was recommended for a responsibility in a distant land. After I had checked out his worthiness and his capacity, I called him and talked with him. I wanted to know about his circumstances. I asked when he would be due for retirement from his employment. He indicated in about five years. I asked what leaving now would do to his future retirement income. He told me that it would mean a very substantial cut in that income. After going into this and other matters, I felt to excuse him. He called back the next morning to tell me that he and his wife had discussed it and they were ready to leave any time. He said they would not worry about the future, that they had faith to believe that a way would be open to them to take care of their needs if they were willing to do that which the Lord asked of them. He went on to say that the Lord had been so good and generous to them and to their children that they would be willing to do anything to show their gratitude. They did not have a great abundance of the things of the world, but they had enough for their basic needs, and more importantly, they had the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that flow therefrom. Now, my brethren and sisters, most of you will not be asked to make such sacrifices or to respond to such calls. But what you do with your lives as you live them from day to day is no less important. Let us now return to our homes with determination to live the gospel more fully. There is nothing the Lord expects of us that we cannot do. 
His requirements are essentially easy. For instance, he said concerning the word of wisdom that it is a principle with promise, adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest of all saints who are or can be called saints. We can observe that word of wisdom. We receive numerous letters inquiring whether this item or that item is proscribed by the word of wisdom. If we will avoid those things which are def definitely and specifically defined and beyond this observe the spirit of that great revelation, it will not involve a burden. It will rather bring a blessing. Do not forget it is the Lord who has made the promise. We can pay our tithing. This is not so much a matter of money as it is a matter of faith. I have yet to find a faithful tithe-payer who cannot testify that in a very literal and wonderful way the windows of heaven have been opened and blessings have been poured out upon him or her. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, every one of you, to take the Lord at his word in this important matter. It is he who has given the commandment and made the promise. I go back to Nephi, who at that time of worry and concern said to his brothers, Let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord, for behold, he is mightier than all the earth. It is not a burden to refrain from two meals a month and give the value thereof to assist in caring for the poor. It is rather a blessing. Not only will physical benefits flow from the observance of this principle, but spiritual values also. Our program of the fast day, which has been spoken of here today, and of the fast offering is so simple and so beautiful that I cannot understand why people everywhere do not take it up. Hearings have recently been held in the Congress of the United States on a proposal to recommend to the President a day of fasting to raise funds for the starving of Africa. Our own experience last spring was so easy of execution and so tremendously productive that our consecrations have blessed thousands without costing any of us to suffer in the least. We can attend our sacrament meetings there to partake of the emblems of the sacrifice of our Savior. As we do so, we will renew our covenants and be reminded of sacred obligations falling upon those who have taken upon themselves the name of the Lord. In these meetings, we will hear counsel for our blessing. We can share the association of wonderful neighbors and friends in the gospel. And what a priceless boon this can be. We can read the scriptures, ponder their meaning, and develop familiarity with them for our everlasting blessing. We can do so in our family home evenings. And as we do, there will grow within our children a love for the Lord and His Holy Word. We can reach out to help one another as neighbors and associates, extending even beyond our own brothers and sisters in the Church to assist any in trouble or want, wherever they may be. 
There is so much of sorrow in the world. There is so much of loneliness and fear. There is so much of hate and bitterness of man's inhumanity to man. Let us, as Latter-day Saints, cultivate a spirit of brotherhood in all of our associations. Let us be more charitable in our judgments, more sympathetic and understanding of those who err, more willing to forgive those who trespass against us. Let us not add to the measure of hatred that periodically sweeps across the world. Let us reach out in kindness to all men, even toward those who speak evil of us and who would, if they could, harm us. In a word, let us more nearly live the gospel of the Master, whose name we have taken upon us. Let us move this work forward. Let our lives be such as to be worthy of emulation. As I conclude and as we close this conference, I think of the charge given by the dying King David to his son Solomon. Be thou strong, therefore, and shew thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments, and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning thee, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. If we will so conduct ourselves as Latter-day Saints, this work will never fall nor even lag. It will move forward toward that destiny given it by him whose name it bears. Our Father will smile with favor upon us, and we shall look to him and live. For these great blessings I humbly pray as I express unto you my appreciation, my love, and my gratitude. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We believe that a man must not could be or might be, but must, be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof, we receive our commissions to move forward. And today we have all participated in the sustaining of Elder M. Russell Ballard, this, a new member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I'm sure Brother McConkie, with whom Brother Ballard worked on a daily basis in missionary work, is rejoicing this day in what has transpired. I think the world little understands the significance of this sacred body, and I join my brethren, Brother Ballard, in welcoming you to this sacred brotherhood. In that day, it was Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, 
Bartholomew and the others, and in just a real, as real and literal a way, same office, same calling, same sacred relationship with the Lord. In our day, it's Spencer and Marion and Gordon and Ezra and Howard and Thomas and the others with the same obligation, the same sustaining power to see this work move forward. And I feel humbled that it was my privilege with you to raise my hand in this sacred uh, occasion here in the church. I desire, for the few minutes allotted me, to encourage you who feel inadequate when someone rejects one or another of the fundamental doctrines of the gospel. The Lord said that every man might speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. So humble men and women, even young people, not professionally trained for the ministry, carry on the work of the Lord. Many of us with little more than the spiritual conviction that it's true. Surely we must appear to be very amateurish when compared to the highly trained professional clergy of the other churches. One doctrine presents a particular challenge. It's our firm conviction that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, as the Revelation state, the only true and living Church upon the face of the whole earth. This doctrine often generates resistance and repels the casual investigator. Some have said we want nothing to do with anyone who makes so presumptuous a claim as that. The early Latter-day Saints were persecuted bitterly for holding to this doctrine. They were the butt of many clever jokes, stories. We, of course, are not free from that today. Should we not, then, make one accommodation and set aside this doctrine, would it not be better to have more except what would be left of the gospel than the relatively few who are converted now? Our missionaries sift through thousands to find one convert. Our harvest may seem impressive, but we're but gleaners. As the scriptures foretold, we gather one of a city and two of a family. Some have recommended that we confine ourselves very strictly to evidences of the gospel, such as the happy family life, temperate living, and so on, and wonder if we could not use the words better or best. The word only really isn't the most appealing way to begin a discussion of the gospel. If we thought only in terms of diplomacy or popularity, Surely we should change our course. But we must hold tightly to it, even though some turn away. It's little wonder that our missionaries are sometimes thought to be overbearing, even when they're most courteous. If our main desire is to be accepted and approved, surely we will feel uncomfortable when others reject the gospel. I recall an experience from pilot training in World War II. Air cadets were posted to colleges for ground training. We were assigned to Washington State University at Pullman. 
Eight of us who had never met were assigned to the same room, and the first evening we introduced ourselves. The first to speak was from a wealthy family in the East. He described the private schools he had attended, and he said each summer their family had gone on the continent. I had no way of knowing that that meant they traveled to Europe. <laughs> the father of the next had been the governor of Ohio and at that time was in the president's cabinet. And so it went. I was younger than most, and it was my first time away from home. Each had attended college. I had none. In fact, there was nothing to distinguish me at all. When finally I got courage to speak, I said, I come from a little town in Utah that you've never heard of. I come from a large family, 11 children. My father's a mechanic and runs a little garage. I told them that my great-grandfather had joined the church and come west of the pioneers. To my surprise and relief, I was accepted. My faith and my obscurity were not a penalty. From then until now, I have never felt uncomfortable among people of wealth or achievement, of high station or of low, nor have I been ashamed of my heritage or of the Church, or felt the need to apologize for any of its doctrines, even those I, I could not defend to the satisfaction of everyone who might ask. Inevitably and properly, the true Church doctrine emerges, emerges very early in any serious discussion of the gospel, for there is no better place to start such a discussion than with the first vision. And there, in that very first conversation with man in this dispensation, the Lord presented it in unmistakable clarity. Joseph Smith sought answer to the question, which of all the sects was right and which he should join. Surely he supposed that somewhere the right Church was to be found. A simple direction to it would end his search. He could then join that Church, live the tenets it proclaimed, and that would be that. But that was not to be. In response to his humble prayer, the Father and the Son appeared to him. When he gained possession of himself so as to be able to speak, he asked which of all the sects was right that he might know which to join. He recorded this. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all of their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He again forbade me to join any of them. That is very blunt language. Little wonder, when he repeated it, the troubles began. If ever he was tempted to disregard those words, they were repeated and sustained in subsequent revelations. 
A little more than a year after the church was organized, the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants was revealed. In it, the Lord said that the Book of Mormon was given in order that his servants, quote, might have power to lay the foundation of this church and bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. After making it clear that he was speaking unto the church collectively and not individually, the Lord warned, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. We know there are decent, respectable, humble people in many churches, Christian and otherwise. In turn, sadly enough, there are so-called Latter-day Saints who by comparison are not as worthy, for they do not keep their covenants. But it is not a matter of comparing individuals. We are not baptized collectively, nor will we be judged collectively. Good conduct without the ordinances of the gospel will neither redeem nor exalt mankind. Covenants and the ordinances are essential. We are required to teach the doctrines, even the unpopular ones. Yield on this doctrine, and you cannot justify the restoration. The doctrine is true, it is logical, and the opposite is not. A few weeks ago, I was returning from the East with President Hinckley. We conversed with a passenger who said something to the effect that all churches lead to heaven. How often have you heard that? The parallel path to heaven philosophy. They claim one church is not really better than another, just different. Eventually, the paths will converge. One is therefore quite as safe in any church as in any other. While this seems to be very generous, it just cannot be true. I find it so interesting that those who condemn us for following the philosophy we do reject the parallel path philosophy themselves when it comes to non-Christian religions. For if they do not, they have no reason to accept the Lord as our Redeemer or regard the Atonement as essential. And what could they do with his statement that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned? While the converging path idea is very appealing, it really is not reasonable. Suppose schools were operated on that philosophy, with each discipline a separate path leading to the same diploma. No matter whether you study or not, pass the tests or not, all would be given the same diploma, the one of their choice. Without qualifying, one could choose the diploma of an attorney, an engineer, a medical doctor, Surely you would not submit yourselves to surgery under the hands of a graduate of a school of that kind. But it does not work that way. It cannot work that way, not in education, not in spiritual matters. There are essential ordinances, 
just as there are required courses. There are prescribed standards of worthiness. If we resist them, avoid them, or fail them, we will not enter in with those who complete the course. Do you realize that the notion that all churches are equal presupposes that the true Church of Jesus Christ actually does not exist anywhere? Now, others may insist that this is not the true Church. That is their privilege. But to claim that it does not exist anywhere, that it does not even need to exist, is to deny the Scriptures. The New Testament teaches of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and speaks of all coming in the unity of the faith and of a restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. We did not invent the doctrine of the only true Church. It came from the Lord. Whatever perception others have of us, however presumptuous we appear to be, whatever criticism is directed to us, we must teach it to all who will listen. The Lord commanded the Latter-day Saints that notwithstanding the tribulations which shall descend upon you, the Church must stand independent above all creatures beneath the celestial world. In obedience, we remain independent. While we cooperate to reach mutual objectives, we do it in our own way. We do not recognize the ordinances performed in other churches. We will not exchange baptisms, a practice which is very common in the Christian world. We do not join associations of clergy or councils of churches. We keep our distance from ecumenical movements. The restored gospel is the means by which Christians must ultimately be united. We do not claim that others have no truth. The Lord described them as having a form of godliness. Converts to the Church may bring with them all of the truth they possess and have it added upon. We are not free to alter this fundamental doctrine of the gospel, not even in the face of the tribulation prophesied in that revelation. Popularity and the approval of the world, perhaps, must remain ever beyond our reach. Some years ago, I was invited to speak to a group at Harvard University. At that time, a member of the Church was campaigning for national office, and there was a great deal of interest in the Church. Both faculty members and students were to be present. I then, of course, hoped that the gospel message would be accepted and the meeting would end with a harmony of views. As I prayed that this might result, there came to me the strong impression that this prayer would not be answered. I determined that, however preposterous the talk of angels and golden plates and restoration might be to them, I would teach the truth with quiet confidence, for I have a testimony of the truth. If some must come from the meeting unsettled and disturbed, 
it would not be me. Let them be disturbed if they would. It was as the Spirit foretold. Some shook their heads in amazement, even cynical amusement, that anyone could believe such things. But I was at peace. I had taught the truth, and they could accept it or reject it as they pleased. There is always the hope, and often it is true, that one among them, with an open mind, may admit one simple thought. Could it possibly be true? Combine that thought with sincere prayer, and one more soul enters a private sacred grove to find the answer, which of all the churches is true? And which should I join? As I grow in age and experience, I grow ever less concerned, I believe, over whether others agree with us. I grow ever more concerned that they understand us. If they do understand, they have their agency and can accept or reject the gospel as they please. It is not an easy thing for us to defend a position that bothers so many others. Brethren and sisters, never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never apologize for the sacred doctrines of the gospel. Never feel inadequate and unsettled because you cannot explain them to the satisfaction of all who might inquire of you. Do not be ill at ease or uncomfortable because you can give little more than your conviction. Be assured that if you will explain what you know and testify of what you feel, you may plant a seed that will one day grow and blossom into a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear testimony that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, as the Lord declared, the only true and living Church upon the face of the whole earth that with it he is well pleased, speaking unto the Church collectively, and that individually, if we are humble and faithful, we can stand approved of him, if we can stand without shame, without hesitancy, without embarrassment, without reservation, to bear witness that the gospel has been restored, that there are prophets and apostles upon the face of the earth, that the truth is available for all mankind, his spirit will be with us, and that assurance can be affirmed to us. Of this I bear witness, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I am humbled and privileged to have participated with you in this great conference, whether you've been viewing it by satellite or at home or whether you will yet see it on video, and I am thrilled and touched by the calls which have come here today and sustained them with all my heart. I'm grateful to be a part of the Lord's work, and the Lord has said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, as I said unto my disciples, where two or three are gathered together in my name as touching one thing. Behold, there will I be in the midst of them, even so am I in the midst of you.
We have surely been blessed by the fulfillment of this promise at this great conference. As we have heard all truth and all hope are centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture defines the gospel in just two brief verses. Quote, and this is the gospel, the glad tidings which the voice out of heaven bore record unto us, that he came in the world, even Jesus, to be crucified for the world, to bear the sins of the world, to sanctify the world, and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. In our day, he restored again to earth his gospel and also his authority to preach and administer its saving ordinances. Joseph Smith, the prophet, was the chosen instrument through which the restoration took place. He was selected of the Lord before his birth to fill this most important mission. The ancient, the ancient prophets knew him and spoke of him. And I quote here, Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, prophesied of him. He even knew his name and his father's name. Quote, For Joseph truly testified, saying, A seer shall the Lord my God raise up. Behold, that seer will the Lord bless, and his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father, and he shall be likened to me for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord shall bring salvation unto my people. Seems that when the Lord wants to change the world, He doesn't send armies or use powerful groups. When it was time to lead the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, the Lord didn't send an army. He sent a baby boy to a Levite home. This baby boy was later to be known as Moses, whom we know as the great lawgiver and the one who delivered the children of Israel from bondage. In the meridian of time, the Father sent His own Son to be born of a virgin mother in a lowly manger. The whole world was affected by his brief life's mission, and he still remains the only hope of mankind here or hereafter. When it was time to restore his gospel to prepare the world for the second coming of his son, he again sent a baby boy to the home of a righteous father and mother. On December 23, 1805, a baby boy came to the home of Joseph and Lucy Mack Smith. Yes, he was born of noble, God-fearing parents who loved the Lord. His paternal grandfather, Asel Smith, stated years before Joseph was born, and I quote, It has been borne in upon my soul that one of my descendants will promulgate a work to revolutionize the world of religious faith. Joseph Smith said, and I quote, Every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the Grand Council of Heaven before this world was. I suppose I was ordained to this very office in that Grand Council. End of quote. I testify to you that he was and he is a prophet of God, and he did restore the gospel of Jesus Christ in our day, together with the power and the keys of authority to administer therein. My assignments have taken me to the areas where he was born, where he lived, where he served, and where he died as a martyr. Near South Royalton, Vermont, a 38-foot, 50-ton granite obelisk, a one-piece granite shaft, one foot for each year of his life, stands to mark the place of his birth. There is surely a hallowed feeling there. It was interesting to me to learn from the history of the area that there were three winners in a row 
when the snowfall was extra heavy, making farming difficult and almost non-productive, causing the Smith family to move to Upper State New York in the Manchester Palmar area, where they hoped to better their condition. This brought Joseph to the Hill Camorra area, where he needed to be. In his need to know which church to join, he read from James in the Holy Bible these words, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. In the sacred grove where he went to pray, he did see and he did hear God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. In answer to his question which church he should join, he was answered, and I quote his own words, I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach the doctrines for doctrines that commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. There is something special about this grove. The feeling, the spirit there is different. A hallowed reverence pervades the whole area. Not far from the sacred grove is the hill Camorra, in which the angel Moroni, an ancient American prophet, had placed in a stone box the golden plates which contained an abridgment of the record of the Lord's dealings with the people who had lived on the American continent years before. And by the gift and power of God, Joseph translated the record from these plates and published a sacred volume known as the Book of Mormon, which is another testament of Jesus Christ. This book was published in Palmyra, New York, by E.B. Grandin. The Grandin Building is now a visitor center where the story of the Book of Mormon's publication is told. From this small beginning, the Book of Mormon has been published in 70 languages, making it available to 73 percent of the people of the earth. It is a sacred record translated by the gift and power of God. Its preface given by Revelation states its purpose to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. It teaches and testifies of Jesus Christ and contains the fullness of his gospel. And Joseph Smith said this about it, and I quote, I told the brethren the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding its precepts than any other book. The Lord commanded the saints to go to Ohio, and I quote his words, Wherefore, for this cause I give unto you the commandment that ye should go to Ohio, and there I will give unto you my law, and there ye shall be endowed with power from on high. As I recalled the great events which took place in Ohio, I found that many marvelous things transpired. The instant the Whitney store, as the prophet Joseph and Emma were driven up to the store, for the first time in a horse-drawn sleigh, the prophet Joseph alighted and greeted Newell K. Whitney, the store owner, in these words, Newell K. Whitney, thou art the man. You have prayed me here. What do you want? The upper room in the Whitney store was the meeting place of the first school of the prophets. The revelation on the word of wisdom and many other revelations were given there. The temple in Kirtland was built by the saints in their dire poverty. It was erected at great sacrifice. Joseph himself worked in the stone quarry. The drill marks can still be seen where the stones were cut. Following the dedication of this first temple, which was a glorious occasion, the risen Christ appeared to Joseph and Oliver as they knelt in prayer, and I quote their words. 
The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under His feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. His eyes were as the flame of fire. The hair of His head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and His voice was as the sound of rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last. I am He who liveth. I am He who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. Let the hearts of your brethren rejoice, and let the hearts of all my people rejoice, who have with their might built this house unto my name. For behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here, and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. And the fame of this house shall spread to foreign lands, and this is the beginning of the blessing which shall be poured out upon the heads of my people. Even so, amen. Following this vision, Moses, Elias, Elijah appeared to bring keys to the priesthood to Joseph and Sidney, which are of such great worth to us and to all mankind. But the saints were forced to leave Ohio in their temple, build at so much sacrifice and at such great cost, and moved to Missouri, where they suffered again. Some lost their lives. Others found refuge at Commerce, Illinois, a swampy area on the east bank of the Mississippi River, where with their industry and faith they built the beautiful city of Nauvoo and erected another temple to their god. Nauvoo became the largest city in the great state of Illinois. But they could find no lasting peace and were yet to be forced to leave Nauvoo and their temple and seek a desert place no one else would want. This baby boy from Vermont now neared the completion of his work. He had translated and brought forth the Book of Mormon, had received the keys and authority from God, had organized the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The earthly scene for the Prophet Joseph and Hiram Smith comes to a close at Carthage, Illinois. Under a pretended promise of protection from the governor of the state of Illinois, they placed themselves in the custody of the law. They received no protection, and there, at the hands of a lawless mob, their mortal lives closed as martyrs, sealing their testimony with their own blood. It is difficult for me to put in words the feeling one has as he stands in that sacred place. The governor of Illinois, Thomas B. Ford, who had promised Joseph protection, said of him after his death, and I quote, Thus fell Joe Smith, the most Im successful impostor in modern times. This summer, as we, did, as we attended the dedication of the Second Temple in Illinois and realized that over 100,000 of our friends had attended the open house for this beautiful Chicago temple, these prophetic words of Joseph Smith had new meaning as to who directs this work. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, comedy may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent until it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, until the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. Of this I so testify in the holy name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.